Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, three of the prophets of the Twelve. They're called the Twelve. They're also called the Minor Prophets. They're not minor because they don't matter. They're minor because their writings don't take up a lot of space. And they put these Twelve texts together at the end of the Bible, after the histories and the prophets. And we're going to end this year's Come Follow Me with Malachi. Malachi is going to be in a couple weeks. He's the last of these 12. And then we'll talk about the intertestamental period, and then we'll be in the New Testament. So we're really a couple weeks out from wrapping up the Old Testament. So let's talk about the book of Nahum today. The book of Nahum was written by a prophet of the kingdom of Judah who prophesied in the late 7th century BC, probably right before the fall of Nineveh in 612. And the reason why we think this is the case is because Nineveh is attacked and it falls. It's attacked by Babylon, and Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And we can kind of figure out when Nahum is given, because Nahum is referring to that in the future. But the third chapter of Nahum in verse 8, it refers to this city, and it's going to be called No in the text, but that's Thebes. It's a, it's a big city in Egypt. That was sacked by the Assyrians in 663 BC, and the third chapter is talking about this as if it's in the past tense. So that kind of gives us a time period. Nahum is living and preaching sometime after 663 and before 612. So he probably was a contemporary of some of these early prophets that were walking around in Jerusalem prior to the Babylonian captivity, people like Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Lehi. So that's kind of just big picture of who Nahum is, but his message is not really going to be about Jerusalem, is it? No. It's going to be about Nineveh. And I guess we could probably compare this, Bryce, to Jonah, Jonah was told to tell them to repent and was really frustrated when they did. But boy, when you read the words of Nahum, he is really castigating the Ninevites. He's really coming at them with negative terms. And if you read Nahum out of context, you can think that Nahum is kind of a mean guy. Yeah, Nahum is a very good example of what might happen if you take the scriptures out of context. If you separate what's going on that produced the words of the text and just read the text in your circumstance. So like if you're just a good Latter-day Saint, I'm trying to do what's right, I'm doing my very best, and you read Nahum, it might terrify you. It'll say things like verse 2 of chapter 1, God is jealous. He's furious. The Lord will take vengeance upon his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. And then he all of a sudden says, oh, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power. And so you've got to make the connection between what he's saying and to whom is he saying it and why is he saying it, what's going on. That's really important. Context matters. And so if we take Nahum out of context, we really can misinterpret what the message is, who it's to, and why it's being given. I think that's really important. Yep. I love this guide from Joseph Smith. He said, I have a key by which I understand the scriptures. I inquire 
What was the question which drew out the answer or caused Jesus to utter the parable? Which is brilliant scripture study technique. What was the question? What was the circumstance? What was going on that would cause this book to be written? So the understanding you must have when you read Nahum is that Nineveh has hit the fullness of iniquity. Nahum chapter 3 begins with, Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. Now, do you remember when we did Hosea, we talked about the fullness of iniquity, that the Lord doesn't show the fullness of his wrath until someone hits the fullness of iniquity. And if you read what was going on in Nineveh in chapter 3, it's pretty apparent that they have hit the fullness of iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has hit the fullness of his wrath. So do not apply that to your circumstance and assume that the Lord is that way with everyone. Only when you cross a very severe line, I mean, they are causing harm to come to the innocent. They've hit a level of wickedness that is causing the Lord to say, I cannot look upon this anymore. That's why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. That's why Nahum is preaching to Nineveh. Now you can see the significance of them repenting and why maybe Jonah didn't want them to repent because they have hit this fullness of iniquity. So as you read Nahum, please remember the circumstance. And if nothing else, maybe you have a conversation with your family, your class, and maybe that's the point you make today is to say, let's read a little bit of Nahum and you tell me what that makes you feel. And then let me tell you the circumstances and tell me if that makes a difference in your interpretation of these verses. The Lord Lord is laying out his case of why Nineveh needs to be destroyed, and that's why he seems to be so angry. We have, Bryce, a lot of evidence outside of the Bible about the activities of the Assyrians. We have what's called the wall panel of Sennacherib's palace that was discovered. It's actually in the British Museum. We actually put a picture of it in the slides, but there's a link there that you can go and you can see it in more detail. And what we read in the annals of Sennacherib is just how brutal the Assyrians were. We link this to some texts. There's a great book that's out there by Daniel Luckenbill called Ancient Records of Assyria and Babylon. And it's from the University of Chicago Press, and it was published in 1926. It's actually out in the public domain now. And so to kind of walk this line, I'm just going to talk a little bit about them, but I also want to keep this podcast family-friendly. Mike, it's kind of like reading Moroni chapter 9, which is a very, very harsh commentary on what was happening during the Nephite War. And you can tell Mormon's kind of struggling, like, I need you to understand how bad it is, but I really don't want to dwell on it. And he says that, I don't want to dwell on this, but I need you to know how bad it was. So Mike's just going to paraphrase a few examples of what was happening in Nineveh, what the people of Nineveh were doing, so that you can understand why the Lord would take such a harsh position against them. Yeah, it really was a brutal situation. The people of Assyria were really the big gorilla on the block during this time period. And one of the reasons why is because they were so brutal. They really do, in many ways, make the Nazis look calm. The siege panels of Sennacherib from his palace 
show some of this. It's actually depicted and they bragged about it. And so in this text by Luckenbill, where he collects the writings of these generals, they would come back from a siege and then they would brag about all the men that they had mutilated and the horrible things that they had done to people. Their brutality and violence was widely known. And so my take on this, this is just kind of how I read history, is during the seventh century, they were so awful and they were so mean to the people that owed them tribute that eventually the other empires kind of banded together and rebelled against them and attacked Nineveh in 612. And so the belligerence in the campaign of 612 wasn't just the kingdom of Babylon. It was also the Medes and then the Scythians. We talked about them back when we were doing Jeremiah. Remember, they're kind of from the steppes up north. The Persians, the Sumerians, all these people kind of banded together and said, we've had enough. Now, when I read history of the seventh century and I see all these nations that are piling on against Assyria, I can't help to think of the middle of the 20th century where we have this kingdom that rises up and they're oppressing everyone, and they're horrible, and a bunch of other nations, we'll call them the allies, they come together and say, we've had it. And that's kind of how I read 7th century Assyrian history. And as I read the writings of these generals as they come back, especially after the siege of Lachish, they brag about the horrible things that they've done to the women and to the men. And so in that context, when you guys read Nahum, he uses some pretty poignant language where he says things like, I mean, it doesn't really translate well in the King James, but if you look in chapter one, verse nine, he says, what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. What he's saying is Nineveh's going down and it's never coming back. This is kind of the opposite of the story of Jonah. In Jonah, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy them if they don't repent. And he preaches to them and they do. But then in this book, in Nahum, the Lord's like, they're going down. Look at verse 10 and 11. This is in chapter one. For while they're folded together as thorns and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. Now that image of burning, that's a second coming image. And a lot of modern prophets read Nahum as a type for the destruction at the end of the world. So they read this stuff as a type. I mean, look in verse five of chapter one, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt. Look at chapter two, verse one, he that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. In verse two, he talks about the emptiers and that they are going to empty them out. I mean, there's just some strong language here that we are just going to annihilate Nineveh. Look in verse 11 of chapter 1. There is one that come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. That's a lawless counselor, probably is a better translation. And this is identified by many as the Assyrian king. And in Jewish tradition, this is identified as Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this lawless one. If you go to chapter 2, Look what it says in verse three, the shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. Probably a better translation of that last bit of verse three is the cypress shafts are poisoned. That refers to either the spears or the arrows of the people involved in this mighty battle. And then verse four, 
chariots shall rage in the streets. The image here is massive chaos. And then you get to verse five, and this can be really confusing. Look in verse five. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. That is the story of the Assyrian king. And he is remembering or recounting. I think remembering is a better translation, but in English, I might even say he's counting his nobles. So he's being attacked and he's gathering up his nobles together to defend the palace. But verse six says it will be destroyed. So this is over and over again in all kinds of different ways. And just this short book of just only three chapters is the destruction of Nineveh foretold by a prophet in Jerusalem and Really, like Bryce said, he's coming from a space of, you guys have met your mark, like the fullness of iniquity is here, and the Lord isn't going to stand for it anymore. And yet hidden in that, Mike, are some golden gems to the Jews. He's trying to speak to the righteous who's seeing what's happened in Nineveh and are probably worried. So you'll find some great things to talk about. In chapter 1, verse 3, after talking about the Lord is furious, the Lord is going to come out against you, it's almost like he pauses, turns to his people and says, but you guys don't forget that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. We can read that a couple different ways too, can't we? Yeah, and I think we should read it in every possible way. Well, like one way is, I have let the Assyrians get to this point because I'm slow to anger. Yeah. Could that be one reading? And he, I think he's saying that to the people who are saying, well, wait a minute, is he going to destroy me? Oh, no, 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 guys. This is happening over a long period of time that I've warned them and warned them and warned them. So please understand that it's my nature to be slow to anger. And then he says in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knoweth them that trusteth him. There's a golden nugget in the middle of all this as he's yelling and screaming at someone who deserves to be screamed at, and yet he looks over at someone else who's probably watching in fear and says, guys, the Lord is good, and he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Hang on to that goodness. You know, Bryce, before we move on, I just got to say that bit on the Lord being slow to anger— It's so beautiful in English, and I just want to pay homage to the Hebrew in this. The Hebrew text literally says that Yahweh is long in the nose or long in the nostrils. It's Yahweh Eric Apaim, and that's literally what it means. And so you read that and you're like, does God have a long nose? And what is this? What's going on with anger? And so we read this in the 18th Psalm in verse 7, and we put this in the slides for you guys, but it basically says, smoke poured from his nostrils. You see, the psalmist is invoking the image of flared nostrils and a nose that is red with rage. And so because God is slow to anger, it takes a long time for his nose to get red. Now, why do I like that? First of all, I love it because that is just really cool. It's kind of a dad joke. But another reason why I like it, and this is just me, this is probably just my theological perspective, but I do believe, and I think the text lends us to this evidence, at least in my mind, that the early Israelites saw God in anthropomorphic terms, and they describe him as such, describing God as one that has a long nose because he's slow to anger is more than just his character. 
but they're talking about him like a real person. As a Latter-day Saint, I think it's good for us to acknowledge the anthropomorphisms in the Old Testament because they do abound. And I know that our Christian neighbors take all of those figuratively, but as a Latter-day Saint and someone in the tradition of following the prophet Joseph Smith, who's seen the Father and Son and described them in those terms, and I really do like that verse in verse 3, but also, like you said, Bryce, if you're a Jew— and you're living in Jerusalem at this time, and you're paying the tribute to the Assyrians, and you're seeing their brutality, you're probably thinking, well, can we pick it up a little bit? Because I'm kind of getting tired of this. And so I like how you're showing us kind of both aspects of that. Yeah. I mean, it's good news, and it's bad news. The bad news for the Jews is he's not quick to destroy, even though you'd like him to be. But the good news for you is he is very patient. I just keep thinking of that phrase that Nephi uttered, never hath any of them been destroyed, save it were foretold them by the prophets of the Lord. The Lord doesn't get to the anger we see described in Nahum immediately or even quickly. It takes a long time to get there. And again, that's good news and bad news. But for us, we need to understand that the Lord doesn't fly off the handle and punish us. He is a kind, understanding long-suffering being, but he will get to a point where it's enough. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I do. I will say this. Um, chapter three is pretty brutal, especially in the first seven verses. I'm not going to say a lot here. We do put stuff in the show notes. It's pretty brutal stuff. But if you look in verse eight of chapter three, the Lord asks this question. We read in verse one of chapter three, woe of the bloody city. But in verse eight of chapter three, it says, are you better than populace? No. Remember, that's Thebes in Egypt that was situated among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea. What the Lord is saying to Nineveh is what you did to the Egyptians, that's coming to you. You're getting what you gave. And I think that's a really true principle that we do see in the scriptures. And it is unfortunate. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. It's going to be unfortunate for the people of Nineveh, but clearly in the, in the eyes of Nahum, they're getting what they've been giving. It's so, that scripture and revelation again that we, taught, we saw in Daniel. He that leadeth by the sword shall be destroyed by the sword. Yeah. This is the patience and the faith of the saints. We know that anyone who lives by the sword will be destroyed by the sword. Anyone who seeks power by force and by victimization of others and brutality will have that come back to them and the sword will destroy them just like they destroyed with the sword. That's the patience and the faith of the saints. And that's the story of Nineveh through the eyes of the prophet Nahum. Yeah, I think that's a good summation of what's going on in this short book, three chapters. We're going to now go to the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk. Uh, this name, it can mean an embrace. Habakkuk was a Judahite prophet who lived during the time when Jeremiah and Lehi and Nahum and Zephaniah taught. And you can see some of that in 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 4. Habakkuk's going to question the Lord about the decadence of his people and the power which the wicked seem to have over the righteous. We're going to see that in the first chapter. He's also concerned about the Babylonians. They're often called the Chaldeans. He's concerned about the threat which they're bringing to Judah. And he's even more worried about the promised destruction of his own country by Babylon. We don't know a lot about his life, but a lot of scholars say that it, his pronouncements and his, his oracles are right around 600 BC. So we don't know a ton, but we kind of see him right in that space of like where Lehi is. 
Now, in the very first chapter, he's going to use this word a bunch. That word is Hamas, and that's the English word for violence. So you're going to see that pop up a bunch of times in chapter one. For example, you'll see in verse two, verse three, and verse nine. And the Lord is going to say that I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, verse 6, and they're going to do this thing against Jerusalem. And so when you read verse 8 and 9 and 10, and it says things like, their horses are swifter than leopards, and they shall come all for Hamas or violence, and they shall scoff at kings, and they, and they, and they, all those things. Those are the Babylonians, and God is using them kind of like his tool to do his work. And this is a Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail moment when he looks at the depravity that he watched in the Mormon War in Missouri, and he watched what the Missourians were doing. Habakkuk is actually seeing that among his own people. He is seeing vile depravity and violence within his own people, the Jews. And he's saying to God, why are you letting this happen? It's Joseph Smith saying, O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long are you going to let this go on? How long are you going to let this depravity exist? By the way, for me, Bryce, this is the main message. It's a fundamental question that I think matters. Yep. And so this little conversation, it starts with Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear me. Where are you, Lord? Why aren't you taking care of this? Mormon said the same thing. I don't know how long the Lord's going to stay his hand here. These prophets are just looking about wickedness and saying, where is the Lord's destruction? Then Habakkuk chapter 1, 5 through 11 is the Lord's answer. And in answering, he just he, he says some very significant things to me. He starts in verse 5, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe. Now, I, I think there's a lot of double meaning in that. He's saying to Habakkuk, I won't let it go on. I will hold them accountable to the destruction they are causing. I will work that type of work. But I think he's also simply saying there's a greater thing going on here. Judah is being purged and hopefully taught a lesson so that when Judah learns that lesson, I can work a work in your days or maybe even in our days that we won't believe. It's this idea of God working marvelously. How many times in the scriptures does God refer to the restoration as a marvelous work and a wonder? And here he says to Habakkuk that he needed to wonder marvelously because the Lord was going to work a work. And so I think there's dual meaning going on saying, yes, I will take care of the wickedness, Habakkuk, but I have bigger plans. I am refining Judah. I am refining Israel so that I can work a marvelous work among them. Clearly, I think there's a reference to we're going to come back from Babylon and a Messiah will be born. And the greatest moment of all will happen in Judah. So patience, Habakkuk, things are working out according to plan. I really like Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 and 11, as that fundamental question. And this is the question that he asks. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? 
We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Now, you'll note some of those words in italics in the King James. That just means they're not there in the original text. But the overall gist of the question is, why are you letting or why are you going to let the Babylonians come in and wreck us? And I think one of the answers and this is just me, this is kind of how I read verse 13, is to look at section 82, verse 3, where the Lord says, For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. I think one of the things that Habakkuk's wrestling with is, why are you letting Babylon succeed against us? Because he sees us in the future. And I think what the Lord's trying to say is, I'm using them as a tool to humble you guys. And so to me, Habakkuk 1, really a good companion text would be Isaiah 10. And Isaiah 10, if you remember, is the story of the Assyrian. Verse 5 of Isaiah 10 says, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. And then he says in verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith. In the 10th chapter of Isaiah, the Lord is describing the mighty Assyrian empire as his tool, that he is using to humble his people. And so we see this in Habakkuk chapter 1. And another companion text, Mike, is 1 Nephi chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, where the Lord says to Nephi, Inasmuch as thy brethren shall rebel against thee, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And inasmuch as thou shalt keep my commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over them. For behold, in that day that they, meaning the Lamanites, shall rebel against me. So the Lamanites rebel. I will curse them even with a sore curse, and they shall have no power over thy seed. Now he begins to twist it. Except they, meaning the Nephites, shall rebel against me also. So what happens when the Nephites rebel against the Lord? Verse 24. And if it so be that they, meaning the Nephites, rebel against me, they, meaning the Lamanites, shall be a scourge unto thy seed to stir them up in the ways of remembrance. In other words, the Lamanites are going to be cursed and lose the Lord's presence, but they will be used as a tool by the Lord if the Nephites rebel against the Lord. Then the Lamanites, who've already lost the presence of the Lord, will become his means of reminding the Nephites to repent. So that's kind of exactly what's going on with Habakkuk is the Lord saying, look, I'm not saying that the Babylonians are my people. They're not righteous. They haven't made covenants. They don't follow in my way. My presence is not with them, but I will use them in order to teach Judah to walk in my statutes. They're a tool in my hands to remind Judah so that I can do something marvelous and great with Judah in the future. So having said that, in chapter 2, he's going to talk about what's going to happen in Babylon. So lest you think that all good things are coming to Babylon, let's talk about what's going to happen in Babylon. And I love that he's kind of saying, they may have their moment in time. They might be the head of gold that Daniel saw in his vision but they will be devoured 
by other kingdoms. And so here's an interesting prophecy that I think is applicable in so many ways. Starting in the end of verse 5 of chapter 2, he says that Babylon, the way they live, they cannot be satisfied. They gather unto themselves all nations and heapeth unto him all people. That's what Babylon is doing. So guess what's going to happen? Shall not all these, meaning the nations that Babylon has destroyed, shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his? Now, verse 7, the Lord says, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee? Verse 8, because thou hast spoiled many nations. He's speaking to Babylon. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. So don't worry, Habakkuk. Babylon will have their moment so that I can teach Judah a lesson. But Babylon is going to be devoured by the people that Babylon devoured. And there's a great lesson for all of us. Good in the end of the world does not necessarily defeat evil. Nephi saw that. In 1 Nephi chapter 22, remember how Nephi was told he would see the rest of the vision, but he wouldn't write it. John would write it. But I I think Nephi was given permission to comment on it. And some of the great surprising things that Nephi saw in the end of the world, I think we have this idea that in the end, good defeats evil. But that's not what Nephi saw. In 1 Nephi 22, verse 13, he says, The blood of that great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall turn upon their own heads, for they shall war among themselves, and the sword of their own hands shall fall upon their own heads, and they shall be drunken with their own blood. The reason good will prevail in the end isn't because good defeats evil. It's because evil destroys itself. You know, Bryce, it reminds me of the end of the 45th section of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says Zion is the only place where the— They won't be at war. Yeah, where the good go and the evil don't want to go, and it's the only place where we don't raise up our sword and hurt each other. And I really like that. And and in essence, that is the message of the end of the Book of Mormon. When their society completely dissolves, then it's just warfare across the board. And the Lord wants Zion. So I really think drawing that distinction does matter. And in the midst of it, I don't think that as a righteous prophet that Habakkuk takes the position that he's going to fix his agenda and make people follow it. He's going to kind of let it play out. The thing that I'm I'm kind of channeling here is the second chapter, verse 1. It kind of reminds me of Ether who goes in the cave. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. So in the Habakkuk, mid- right? Yeah, we're in Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk sees all this stuff. And in verse 1, it says, I will stand upon my watch. And I will set me upon the tower, and I will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And then the Lord answered me. Now I'm going to get to the answer in a second. But verse 1 kind of reminds me of Mormon. I mean, if you go to Mormon chapter 3, verses 9 through 16, we see this resignation where Mormon says, I'm just going to wait. Uh, Habakkuk sees that he's kind of pushed the Lord 
and I, I want to get the answer. And the Lord's like, okay, I'm going to give you the response. And the response is in verse two, where he says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Probably a better translation is, I want you to write this prophecy so big that even a runner can see the prophecy. Now, this is just me. This is my interpretation of verse two. But if we look at the political and social circumstances of this time period, we have all this political discontent. Lehi is saying some things that are going to get him killed, so he's got to leave. We have a cloud of witnesses. There's so many prophets walking in and around Jerusalem telling the people, hey, this is going to happen. And it's almost like the Lord is making it so plain so that you cannot misunderstand. This is going to happen. But at the same time, he's not going to force it. And so what happens? Verse 6, 7, and 8. Babylon's going to come in and do their bit. But the Lord says, you're going to get yours. Like you read earlier, verse 8. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. And so I think there really is a message here. It's multivalent. But one of the messages is, um, at least big picture with these empires, how you treat others is going to blow back. But I think we can really individualize this and say, okay, how am I like Babylon? And then another way to, to look at this, I mean, especially as a parent and as a grandparent, chapter two, verse one, I have to let my kids make their choices. I can stand on the tower and I can wait and I can pray and I can teach and I can make it, verse 2, so plain that they cannot misunderstand, but I have to let them make their choices. And so I really see Habakkuk kind of in a double bind where he sees what's coming, but he also can't force it. And then he's probably asking back to chapter 1 where he's like, Lord, why don't you fix it? And the Lord says, I have to let my children make their choices. So there's a lot of really cool applicable things here, even though I will admit sometimes the English is a little clunky sometimes. Yep. And I really like how chapter 2 ends. I think he's been saying to Habakkuk, hey, don't worry, Babylon will have their moment, but they will be destroyed. And then I think he's kind of turning and looking at his people saying, don't envy Babylon. Don't think they have something good going on. And so he ends it with this imagery of what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. What good is a dumb idol? And then he says, woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. In other words, don't idolize Babylon. Don't idolize their power and their triumph and their victory. Don't put your faith in a dumb idol. It's the Lord that has the power to save you. And I just think that's a little reminder to Habakkuk's people and to all of us. And he says in verse 20, don't worship a dumb idol, but the Lord is in his holy temple. All the earth kept silence before him. He is the one that has the power. Yeah. Now that leads us to chapter three. Habakkuk, having had these conversations with the Lord, I think Habakkuk was allowed to see a little bit into heaven and saw God in his majesty and in his glory. And I think he was just overwhelmed with gratitude and praise and love. And so that's what leads to chapter three. Chapter three is just like second Nephi four, Nephi's Psalm, where he just shows what's in his soul and the greatness of God. This is kind of 
his psalm, his praise, his song that he's singing to God. And it's really beautiful and has some wonderful imagery. Yeah. It is this really interesting interlude where we have these first two chapters, and then chapter three just comes out of almost nowhere, and it's this psalm that's just drenched in really, really archaic kind of speech. In fact, the very first verse of chapter three says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigenoth, and we don't know what that is. It's a musical instrument, but we don't know what kind of musical instrument it is. And this whole thing is beautiful poetry, but it's drenched in what I call ancient Canaanite mythological language. And so Robert Alter said this about this. He says, this is celebrating God's power, Yahweh as a warrior God. It looks very much like an editorial coda attached to Habakkuk's prophecies, perhaps because whoever assembled the text felt that these brief poems needed kind of a rounding out. Some of the references are mythological and archaic, leading one to suspect that this could be a much older poem. And I would concur with Robert Alter on that. This stuff is really old. Mark Smith has written extensively about the poetry and the writings of the Canaanites and what's called the Baal cycle. Like this stuff's going on here. So back to Robert Alter. At several points, the text looks badly scrambled, either because a scribe did not understand all the archaic language or else he tried to alter its mythological content. The identity of the shigonot, that's the very first verse, that, that musical instrument, he says the identity of this instrument is unknown. As is often the case in the book of Psalms, the identity of this musical instrument is not known, although the verbal stem could suggest a rhapsodic or elevated state. Okay, so with that in mind, Go to verse 3 of Habakkuk 3. It says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. There's a lot of scholarship questioning, okay, when did Yahweh originate? When did they start naming him this? Because the early Israelites kind of had this idea of a father god and a mother goddess, and then a son of the father and mother. And then at some point in their history, Yahweh kind of takes over the characteristics of the father and even the mother, depending on who you read. And the origin of this, to some scholars, is that he came from Teman. Now, that's in the South. And Frank Moore Cross has written about this, as well as other scholars, that there seems to be some evidence that that was the name that they had for God there. And as Israel passed through that region, that they kind of incorporated the name of that God. Now, just know, Jehovah is the Jesus of the New Testament. But when we read the Old Testament, it really is kind of messy, and we have lots of different names for God, and we have a lot of polytheism going on throughout Genesis. But by the time we get to this time period of the seventh century, we're pushing more towards monotheism. And Habakkuk 3 is lending itself to a time when the Israelites acknowledged other gods. In scholarship, this is often called henotheism or monolatry. And it's just a fancy way of saying, hey, Bryce likes chicken, and I like chicken. Bryce, what's your favorite chicken place? Do you have a favorite place? I'm a McDonald's man, Mike. I just like the McDonald's crispy chicken okay, sandwich. The crispy chicken. I happen to be a fan. I like Popeyes, but I also like uh, Chick-fil-A, but I hate waiting in line. But my point is, if you walked around and said there's only one place to get chicken, Bryce would come and say, dude, there's McDonald's. And I'd say there's Popeyes. You could never convince me that there's only one place to get chicken because I've been to these other chicken places. But in the ancient Near East, that's how it was with gods. Like you would go to a town and there would be a temple to a god. 
And then you go to another town and there'd be a temple of another God. And everyone's kind of acknowledging that these gods exist and they're kind of regional. And that's why we read in Exodus 20, where Yahweh says to Moses, you guys shall not put any other gods before me. You see, Embedded in that statement is that Yahweh is acknowledging that there are other gods. Now, I'm not saying there are other gods. I'm just saying that's kind of how that was textualized, that in the ancient Near East, it was kind of acknowledged that there were other gods. Well, from the perspective of the authors of the Hebrew Bible, they're also acknowledging this early on. But by the time we get to the seventh century, they're really pushing towards this view of there's one God, his name is Yahweh, and those other gods... They're either acknowledging them or over the course of time, they're saying they do not exist. When we get to the time period of the New Testament, the New Testament authors are going to call those other gods daimons or demons. So they're going to acknowledge forces, but they're going to say they're forces of darkness. Why am I saying all this stuff? What does this have to do with Habakkuk 3? Because of verse 4 and 5. Remember, in verse 3, God is going to come from Teman. Elo, that's going to be the the word they're going to use for God there. Verse four says, his brightness was as the light and he had horns coming out of his hand. Don't worry, we're going to talk about that. And there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and the burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Okay, the reason why we just read those verses is because of verse 5. To me, the translation totally changes the meaning of the verse. It says that before him went Debar and Reshef went forth at his feet. Now in Hebrew, those are actually ancient Near Eastern gods. So what we see here happening is this mythological view of these other gods from other nations, and they're being incorporated either as part of God's retinue, you can read verse five as these gods are part of God's retinue and they're kind of like his subservient gods, or you can read them as characteristics of God. And so what we see is this morphing of ideas in history, and I'm going to call it mythology, but wow, we can parse that word a lot of different ways. Like, what do I mean by mythology? A story, a story of these gods, but the author of Habakkuk 3 is invoking those images to say that they're either in God's retinue or they're part of his attributes. And so what they see here is God's power, but these other gods are incorporated in that. Now, in the midst of that, we have this idea of horns coming out of his hand, and that's in verse four. Now, that idea really has to do with the word Karen. And that word Karen can be translated as horn, but it can also be translated as light or strength. Now, if you remember um, in Michelangelo, when he does the statue of Moses, we literally have these little horns coming out of Moses's head. It's because it's kind of invoking that same idea. And Michelangelo carves Moses with horns. And I think a better translation would be that he has light coming out of him or power coming out of him. And so that's kind of what you can do with verse four. Now, I do want to just make this mention that the Greek translators of this text in the third century didn't know what to do with verse five. And so where we have Deber, pestilence, in verse five, they translated that as Debar. Now in Hebrew, Debar is speech or the word, and then they translated out Reshef. They just took it out. They literally translate Debar as the Logos. And so the translation is going to be in Habakkuk 3 verse 5, before his face, the logos will go, 
with sandals on his feet. And to me, it totally changes the meaning of the verse. But what we see, at least in my opinion, is the third century Jewish translator saw this very strange passage. And he's like, I'm not putting Reshef. This is a God of pestilence and destruction. I'm not even going to put him in the verse. And I'm going to take Deber and I'm going to change it to Debar. I'm going to make that the word. And so he sees the logos as part of God. Now that's going to be an important image in the New Testament where Jesus is going to be described as the logos. So stay tuned. We'll do that when we get to John 1. So just know that there's a lot more we can say. And a lot of this stuff is in the show notes. And we put in the slides some really good scriptures you can use to kind of also read in the context of this chapter, especially verses three, four, and five. The slide's called The Divine Warrior. And we channel Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 68, and Judges 5. And you can kind of read those and get your bearings as to how the ancients viewed God, because the divine warrior motif is persistent throughout the Old Testament. So we see that in chapter three, that God is acting as the warrior. Look in verse 13. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Verse 15, thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So that's really who he is. He's this divine warrior in this context. He's causing Midian to tremble. The mountains are trembling in verse 10. And even verse 11, the sun and the moon are going to stand still. So, you know, if everything that we just read in verse 3, 4, and 5 of Habakkuk 3 sounds really strange, don't worry, it's okay. Just keep moving forward. But I'm just trying to acknowledge that these ideas are here in the Old Testament, and we're kind of swimming in this soup of syncretism, different religions, different perspectives. And whoever wrote Habakkuk 3 is incorporating these ideas to show God's glory and his greatness. Mike, I love the last two verses. They just sing out to me where Habakkuk says, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet and he will make me to walk upon my high places. That image of a hind, a deer, those types of animals that can just ascend in leaps, not how I climb mountains, struggling, but they just leap up a mountain, is a beautiful image of those that trust in Lord will take them up the mountain. He will just give us the strength to leap. That's a beautiful image. I just hear Nephi's psalm in these last two all over and over again. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He is my strength. You know, Bryce, I also like the end. And I think it really is poetic. And it lends itself to us seeing Habakkuk's understanding of the majesty of God. It's really good. Okay, so with that, let's go to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the last prophet we're going to do today, and he was a prophet that was in Jerusalem. We don't know a lot about him, but it has been proposed that he was a descendant of King Hezekiah. Now, I don't know. I don't know if he was, but it's been proposed. And the clues in the text lend a lot of people to think that this book was written right around 635 to 625 BC. And a big theme of this book is going to be the day of the Lord. In 
my reading of it, especially chapter one, is he gives a, an edict against Jerusalem. He's warning them that things are going to happen. Now, Zephaniah is like all the prophets we've been talking about recently that are crying out woes against either Judah or Israel, depending on the time period, that Israel is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians because of their wickedness, and that Judah is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians because of their wickedness. And Zephaniah actually describes the destruction of Jerusalem and basically compares it to the destruction of the world at the second coming. But this is why Jerusalem was be destroyed. Chapter 2 is kind of that that same thing, that war is going to be poured out upon all the nations. It's a rebuke to the nations. But then chapter three is hope that things are going to get better, that this destruction is a lesson needing to be learned, and that there will be a people that rise out of it, and it's going to be glorious in the end. So just kind of that same message, warnings, destruction's coming, but there's going to be a return. There's going to be a remnant, and it's going to be victorious. I do want to talk about this part in chapter 1, verse 4. It says, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Kemarims with the priests and them that worship the hosts of heaven upon the housetops. And so from the perspective of Zephaniah, these Kemarim are cast in a bad light. And I want just to acknowledge some of the tension in the Old Testament. And if you remember, we talked about this during the reforms of Josiah. Josiah is going to put down the Kemarim. We read this in 2 Kings 23, verse 5. The text, you know, it's literally calling them Ha-Kemarim or the Kemarim, and it can be read by some scholars as the Melchizedek priests. One non-Latter-day Saint scholar said this, to translate the Kemarim as idolatrous priests is not accurate, since the distinction between the Kemarim and the Kohanim, Kohan is like the word for priest, so the Kohanim would be priests in plural, since the distinction between these two is not clear. There were Kemarim for the golden calf in Samaria, if you read Hosea 10 verse 5, and there were Kemarim who worshiped the host of heaven on the rooftops together with the Kohanim in the time of Josiah. We read that in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 4. We just read that. The word is usually translated idolatrous priests, although to distinguish them from the Kohanim, this cannot be the distinction. And then the scholar notes that there was an indication in some of the texts that the Kemarim were associated with Melchizedek. Now, why am I talking about this? I just want to acknowledge that the Kemarim could be Melchizedek priesthood holders. We read of this place in the Book of Mormon, and I think there's a connection here to the Kemarim. We read of this place called Cumorah, which could be interpreted as the place of the Kemarim. It's this final place where there's a showdown between the final remnants of the Kemarim and the enemies. Now, not, not everybody's agreeing on this stuff, so I'm just acknowledging it. We put some of this in the show notes, and you can go down those rabbit holes, and you can decide. But I think what we see in Zephaniah is they're denigrated. They're considered the bad guys, but I'm just open to this position, especially when we look at some of these other texts, that maybe they weren't. And think about this. Lehi is denigrated by his contemporaries, and whoever has the power writes the story. And so that's why, in my opinion, Nephi is trying to tell the story of his father because he knows that others are denigrating him. And so religion kind of does this. It just kind of has this give and take, this push and pull. 
Um, with that in mind, I think Bryce and I have really sufficiently talked about the prophecies against Jerusalem. So you can kind of see them in chapter one. They're pretty plain. And then a common theme in a lot of these prophetic writings is after they castigate the people in Jerusalem, then they kind of take their turn at the nations around Jerusalem. And that's chapter two. And so you can kind of read that. It's all in there. But then there's this really neat passage in chapter three, verse nine, that talks about turning the people to a pure language. Now, this is so symbolic. Now, I know the Old Testament was put together in an odd way, and they're throwing these 12 prophets in at the end, which is not necessarily where they fell in the history of the Old Testament. I acknowledge that. But I find it so significant that in our modern day, in the Bible, Zephaniah is toward the end. So, book ending the Old Testament, and then book ending all of our scripture, which includes the Doctrine and Covenants, are two very interesting prophecies that associate with the very beginning of the Old Testament. The Old Testament began in chapter 10 of Genesis with a dividing of the land. There was, in the days of Peleg, a dividing of the land. Now, I don't know if you're a literalist on that or a, or a figuratist, but the suggestion here is that the land was once one. If you believe that literally, that there was one continent, or symbolically, that it was one together. And then in the days of Peleg, the land was divided. Now we live among seven continents and islands all over. We have nations all over this planet. We are a divided planet. In the very next chapter of Genesis, the language was divided. That's the whole story of the Tower of Babel. So, the Bible begins with the dividing of the one land and the dividing of the one language. Now, Zephaniah mentions that in the millennium, I think we can place chapter 3 in a millennial day. In the millennium, verse 9, I will turn to my people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Now, if that is suggesting what I think it's suggesting, that during the telestial return to paradisical glory earth, we will speak one language, restored to that one language we had before the languages were divided. So bookending all of our scriptures and bookending the Old Testament are these two prophecies. The second prophecy in Doctrine and Covenants section 133, verses 23 and 24, it gives a prophecy that the land shall become one land. It goes on to say, and the earth shall be like as it was in the days before it was divided. Now, that's both referring to the land and to this state of being, that this earth began in a terrestrial state in the Garden of Eden, one land one language. This earth will return to a terrestrial Edenic state of paradise with one land and one language. And in between is a mess. In between is the division of the land and the division of the language. And so I think big picture overall message the Lord seems to be saying about our time on earth between those two ends is that we must overcome the division of this world. We must overcome that division. We can't let it separate us. We must be one, even in a world where there's so much division. 
We must be one people. That's why Zion is described as having one heart and one mind. You know, Bryce, right out of the Garden of Eden, I don't take this literally, and neither did President Kimball, but we have this story of God making Ha'adam the man, and he pulled the rib out, and he made Eve, and then he said what to them? Go be one. So it's with Adam and Eve, it's with the language, it's with Israel and Judah, it's with their texts, back to Ezekiel 37, make them one stick, make them one nation, and then we're back to the language. So the Lord's saying it in so many different ways. So many ways throughout this Old Testament. We hope you've seen it, that we are here in a divided, scattered, turn against each other, we all speak different languages, we live in different lands. And yet we must be one. If we are not one, we cannot be the Lord's. May we be one in our families, one heart, one mind. May we recognize that differences exist, but differences don't need to divide us. As a side note, Bryce, if you look in verse 14, the Lord says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all thy heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. I mean, if you're singing... You're singing the same tune, the same notes. I I really like that. It's a beautiful idea that this world, the land and the language, the scriptures will all become one. Now, are you with us or are you not? Are you one with the people, with God? So symbolically, we can speak the same language, the language of our hearts, the language of the gospel. May we speak that language today. May we be united, even as we live among so much difference. May we be one. I think that's the conversation I would have this week with my family, with my children, is let's overcome the differences and speak one language. And so with that, we'll leave you today. We thank you for your time as we've covered these chapters. We'll see you next week when we cover Haggai, and Zechariah. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.